Well, let's turn, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, and we will be starting today uh, in verse 6. We're going to be talking today about how, just as you heard sung, God is the potter and we are the clay. And how easy it is, though, to question his ways with men, not to mention his ways with us. And the tension between unloading our hearts with him, as David does all through the Psalms, but not going over the line that we're going to be talking about today. It's so easy to question him, whether you're an adult or a kid. Like the little girl who wrote this, Dear God, it rained for our whole vacation, and is my father mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but I hope you will not hurt him anyway. Signed, your friend, but, parentheses, I'm not going to tell you who I am. Here's another child, one who had a bone to pick with God. Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) Signed, Joyce. Rarely, I suspect, does God get letters like this. Dear God, I do not think anybody could be a better God. And I am not just saying that because you are God already. Signed, Charles. Letters like that are much more rare than the other types, perhaps, because if you've ever seen the potter work, his ways are, like, almost always hurtful to the clay. As he presses and pinches and even pounds it into uh, the right shape. Change is painful. If you think about it, everything the potter does changes something about the clay, the shape of the clay, sometimes in what look like rather violent ways. And then there's the fire that the clay has got to go through, which solidifies the work for all eternity. Without which it would just go back into its former shape. We're going to see today that the potter has the right over the clay, which doesn't play very well, which doesn't sit all that well in a land of inalienable rights, as we call them. Especially in America, where we so tend to idolize the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, even if it means turning things around theologically where we put God on the stand and cross-examine him rather than men on the stand where they belong. But as we'll see today, it's in our own best interest to let God be God and to simply accept his ways. Because as someone said, the chief pang of so much of our suffering is not the suffering itself, but our spirit of resistance to it. You know, I was reading Time magazine a while back, happened to be in the letters to the editor section at the very beginning, letters commenting on the cover story the week before. The cover story that was titled, Jesus Online, subtitled, Finding Religion on the Internet. It was a really good article. But they chose to highlight one of those letters in large type the next week. It was right next to the picture of Jesus that was on the cover, the the little cover uh, that was on the cover the week before. It was from Richard S. Russell in Madison, Wisconsin. And in large, bold print above all the other letters, it said this. If Jesus is really online, what's his personal email address? I've got a few bones I'd like to pick with him. There it is again. 
This email might not seem like that big a deal, but after today, I hope it will. Of all the letters they could have highlighted, why this one? I've got a few bones I'd like to pick with him. I suspect it's because it resonated with something in the editors, and they thought it would resonate in their readers as well, and I'm sure it did. It was, it was kind of a cheap shot with this flippant air, but one that betrayed something deeper, and that is a sheer ignorance when it comes to the knowledge of God, the true stature of Jesus, the Lord Christ, whose eyes are a flame of fire and whose word is alive and sharp and powerful, the judge of all the earth in whose sight there is no creature hidden, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4.13, who will someday judge the quick and the dead. You have a bone to pick with him? You turn things around. It betrays something we take for granted. A complete absence is something that should mark the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian that's in such short, short supply in our country, and that is the fear of God. But does it mark the difference? Have you ever had a few bones to pick with him? I hope I'm not the only one. And the air we breathe these days does not help. I'm afraid that in our tradition where Jesus, even among Christians, is reduced to just a friend, to gentle Jesus, meek and mild, I'm afraid that familiarity... And yeah, we can have familiarity, but too much familiarity breeds contempt. Not only outside the church, but inside the church. And so we rush in like fools and think things and say things and demand things of God where angels would fear to tread. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote in a book of essays called God in the Dock. In Britain, the dock is, is the witness stand where the witness is cross-examined. And God in the Dock is the title of the first essay. Lewis put it this way. The ancient man approached God, or even God's plural, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge, and God is in the dock. He is... Quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war or poverty or, or disease, if God should have a reasonable defense for that, modern man may be ready to listen to that. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. We come today to a passage that deals with our all-American insubordination, not just among non-Christians, but among believers, as we've seen through all that's happened politically and otherwise recently. A passage that puts us in our place and God in his place. A passage that can be summed up like this. You have a bone to pick with him? It gives the ultimate answer to all our affliction and to all our questions, one that that breaks every bone that we have to pick with him. And that is, as I titled this sermon, as we heard sung, you are the potter. Romans 9, starting in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has 
failed, Paul says. He's picking it up where we left off last time. In the context, it means it's not as though the love of God has failed. Where does this come from? Where we, well, we saw last time just how much is at stake here. Paul told us at the end of chapter 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of God. But then the question was this. What about the Jews, God's chosen people? They sure seem to be separated. If even they aren't secure in his love, then what hope have we? Last week we saw uh, Paul's passion for these people in verses 1 to 5 of this chapter, chapter 9, which we saw was God's passion uh, through him, his sacrificial passion that brought him to the cross. Just like we can channel the love of God like Paul did as we engage our world, like uh, our last value says, and we saw how to do that. We saw that Paul proved personally, he proved, you might say, incarnationally, that nothing will separate them or us from the love of God. Now we'll see him prove it theologically. And it involves some hard teaching today, but it's balanced out as is typical of Scripture, because last week it was all about God's love, which is where Paul picks it up here in verse 6, but then he gets to something quite different. But he picks it up where he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. That is, God gave them his word. He made promises to Israel that they would be his people forever and that nothing would separate them from his love. And though it might not seem like it, 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 it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? Well, reading on, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Just like they are not all Christians, you know, who are descended from Christian parents. Same thing, verse 7. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's physical descendants. That is, they're not all children of God because they're descended from Abraham. Paul's teaching that just because they're Abraham's offspring physically doesn't mean they're his offspring spiritually. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. He explains it now, verse 8. But the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise, verse 9. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. This was God's word of promise to Abraham. Hope against hope at his old age that she would conceive and bear a child. And he believed God. And in believing God, it was reckoned unto him as righteousness, as we know. Only then did he become a true Jew. That is, true Jewishness, Paul's saying, has always been, from the beginning, a spiritual matter of believing the right thing and acting in light of that belief in addition to the racial matter of being born a Jew. Because being right with God, being a child of God for the Jew and Gentile alike has always been a matter of faith in God's promise, faith in God's word. And it started with Abraham. And so just because you see a whole lot of Jews who are separated from God's love doesn't mean that his love is not dependable or that his word is not faithful. Because God's promise was not to to all the Jews in the first place. It was to all the Jews who had placed their faith in the promise like Abraham did. And there are a whole lot of Jews today who haven't believed just like there were in Christ's day among the Pharisees. And so indeed, nothing shall separate the true believer from the love of God. That's the idea. Now, that answers one one question about his love, that he doesn't seem to be faithful. But you might say it opens up another, a whole can of worms. 
because this leads to another question about his love that's far deeper and far harder to answer, and that is this. Okay, he's, so he's faithful to those who he's chosen, but it seems like he's so fickle in the choosing. That is, he's faithful if you're lucky enough to be among the chosen, but he's not fair in the way he chooses, at least so it seems. We've already seen that he chose Isaac as the son of the promise and not Ishmael. And then Paul continues with this whole idea of God's choosing in verse 10. And not only this, there was Rebekah also when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older one will serve the younger. He determined the, uh, the fate of those in the womb. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before they were born. What shall we say then? Is there no injustice? Well, let's stop right there. God chose Abraham's son Isaac over Abraham's son Ishmael. And then he went on to choose Isaac's son Jacob over Isaac's son Esau before any of them were ever born. And it says he did it before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. Why? Verse 11, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That is, it was be, if it was because of anything in them, they could take the credit and God wouldn't get the glory. And it'd be salvation by works. And so the deeper issue that Paul lands on is this. Yes, he's faithful toward those he's chosen, but he seems so fickle in the choosing. What kind of love is that? Paul anticipates that question in the next verse, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? You feel like putting him in the dock. He's saying, I know what you're all thinking. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated before they were even born. That sure doesn't sound fair to me. To which Paul would say, may it never be that there would be injustice with God. But then, rather than telling us why it would never be, why there's not injustice with God, why it's not unfair, he, he, it's like he digs the hole even deeper. Or so it seems. He keeps pushing this doctrine that it's all according to God's choice, that it's not because of their choosing, but because of his calling, verse 15. For he says to Moses, it's not just them, it's non-Christians as well. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. What we have here is God's sovereign choice. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, 
though the twins were not yet born. Because he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. And he does it in order that his purpose, according to his choice, might stand. God's sovereign choice. Now, if I were Paul, I would have tried to soften the blow at this point. (laughs) To sweeten the medicine. And there are a lot of biblical things that you could say that would soften it. In fact, Paul himself does this a few verses later, as we're going to see next week. Gives some incredible answers to this. We're going to see that we are not puppets because his sovereignty does not cancel our responsibilities. Our choices really do matter. We'll see that only God... Only sovereignty in the highest conceivable sense could exercise such control that vessels destined for wrath by virtue of his choice actually deserve his wrath by virtue of their choices. It's in the mystery of God that these things are reconciled. And we'll see that God is not tyrannically sovereign, not, you know, capriciously sovereign, but mercifully sovereign, which in fact is the main idea of this whole section as we're going to see. We'll see a lot of things next week, but Paul isn't eager to allay our fears or our accusations. He doesn't rush into softening the teaching, as I think I might have done. In fact, the first thing he does is to make it even more severe by setting certain things straight first. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? This is the question that theologians have tried to answer for centuries. How can he condemn people for the very choices it seems like he caused them to make? And even now, no, now, I think of all the answers that could be given. And next week we'll see some of them. But this is not Paul's first instinct. To run in and bail out God. Rather, he deals first, not with the question, but with the insubordination behind the question. With the attitude of the questioner. Because without the right attitude, we will not have the right aptitude to understand the secret things of God. For the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. Psalm 25, 14. Unlike most Americans, Paul knew the fear of God, and so he was far more quick to defend God's rights than he was to debate God's ways. Again, verse 19. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you? You have a bone to pick with him? Reading on. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have the right over your rights, over the clay? To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable. There's a severity to Paul's teaching here that we shouldn't try to soften too quickly. So we'll wait till next week to defend God's ways. And this week, along with Paul, we'll defend God's rights. Whatever those ways may be. 
as we move from God's sovereign choice to God's right to choose. Again, verse 21, does not the potter have the right over the clay? What he's saying here is very simply that the creator's rights supersede the creature's rights. Which doesn't very play very well in the land of inalienable rights in which we live. And that is rights that should never be taken away. We idolize our rights as though our pleasure, our good, our uh, life, you know, liberty and the pursuit of happiness uh, were the central necessity of the universe. Rather than his purpose to his glory. We idolize our rights as though we were divine, as though we were God, forgetting that only God has inalienable rights and not us. All our rights come from him, and none of them are inalienable or irrevocable. Any of them can be rescinded at any moment if it suits his purpose. And it'll be a rude awakening for this country when it happens, when the judgment begins as it already has. Our rights should never be taken away. Oh no, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, Job said. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God had just killed his children, taken away their right to life. And he said, essentially, it's your right to do that. And I'll not curse you for it as my wife said I should. No, I'll still bless you. There is no God beside me, Deuteronomy 32, 39. I kill and I make alive. It's my choice. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So don't resist it. Because the potter has the right. The potter has the right over the clay. Paul could hardly have said it more plainly. This is hard teaching. But... This doctrine of God's sovereignty is the kindergarten. And especially in our tradition as a church, the Reformed tradition, it really highlights this in a powerful... It's the kindergarten of basic theology. It's like we got to get down and he puts his hands on our shoulders as little kids. And he says, I am God. I do not exist for you. No, you exist for me. I am the creator, you are the creature. I am the potter, you are the clay. And it's so critical that we really understand this about ourselves and that we really accept this about him. It's so important that we let God be God both in our theology and in our lives and in our personal biographies without questioning him at every turn, without going over the line. Yes, he can handle our... Emotions, but there's a line we dare not cross. And it's so essential that we understand our station that he reminds us of this again and again all through Scripture. I wish there were time to look up all the passages, but we would save ourselves untold grief if we just accept it. Job believed it, as we saw. Job ended up, as we all know, also resisting it like most of us do. Just like he said in chapter 10, verse 8, your hands have made me and fashioned me all together. He saw you were the potter. 
He believed it, but then he went on to say in the very next word, but would you destroy me? He believed it, but he resisted it. Remember now that you have made me as clay. You're the potter. He believed it. And would you turn me into dust again? He resisted it. More and more he went over the line. Again and again, Job questioned God's right to treat him in that way because he didn't think he deserved it. And you know how God ended up answering his questions? He, God never once gave him the answer that he wanted. No, he gave him the answer that he needed. He could easily have explained himself. If he were in the dock, he, he could have said, no, no, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't be, don't be mad at me. It's just like I said, you are blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. I'm not being unfair. It wasn't because of any great sin that I did this to you. It was Satan doing it to you, not me. He asked permission to shift you like wheat and to prove what I said about you was wrong, that you were blameless and upright, to prove that you would curse me to my face if I, if I let him do these things to you and you didn't curse me to my face and you passed the test and now all heaven is rejoicing. So don't be mad. Rejoice, Job. Are we friends again? Not a word about any of those things because he put Job on the dock. He could have answered him like that, but he didn't. Rather, he gave him the same answer that Paul gives us in Romans 9. He rebuked Joe's attitude. He first dealt with the insubordination behind the questions, with his lack of submission in the potter's hands. Job 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will instruct you. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I created the word? On and on he went. You have a bone to pick with me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk, or or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together after I created them, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And then he goes on like that, as you all know, for two more chapters. Until in chapter 40, verse 1, he says, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Once again, you have a bone to pick with me. Let him who reproves God answers it. Answer it. And then it, seems, and then it seems that Job finally gets it. And so in chapter 40, verse 3, uh, he, he says, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I repay you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will not add anything more. That's good, right? But God's not done with him yet. It seems the potter hasn't dug, dug deep enough. And so in the next verse, he goes on to say, now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment that is what I have allowed in your life? 
and condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? On and on. And then he lays into him for two more chapters. In which he essentially reminds him that he is the sovereign creator and that Job has no business questioning his fairness. All told, the rebuke went on for four chapters because God knew that even Job, even this man who was righteous and blameless in all his ways, even Job needed to learn something to the core of his being through, through his self-interest and self-love and self-righteousness and pride of life. All that came out as he purified him. So much else he needed to know that you are the potter. I am the clay, just like we heard sung. Mold me and make me. I submit after thy way. <laughs> if even he needed to learn that lesson, how much more do we? And once he had finally learned the lesson to the core of his being, wrapping it up in chapter 42, the last chapter, verse 1. Then Job, this is the second time Job answered him. He answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's repeating God's words against him to himself. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know, here now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. And only then did God lift his suffering. Once he stopped demanding that he lift it. Because that's what Job really needed. Not deliverance, but acceptance. Not an answer, but an encounter. An encounter with the holy God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7. And in Romans 9, Paul says the same thing to us that God, God, that God said to Job, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? If we only knew how we sound, oftentimes we come across about as ignorant in the knowledge of God, as deficient in the fear of God as Richard S. Russell was in Time Magazine when he said, what's his personal email address? I've got a few bones I'd like to pick with him. If we could only hear ourselves, maybe you're struggling with how God allowed a loved one to die without even knowing Christ, at least as far as you know. Or how he could allow them to suffer as much as they did. Or how he could let you lose your job or your parents get a divorce. Or how he could harden whom he desires, especially if it's one that you love. Well, if the story of Job teaches us anything, it's this. Just because he doesn't explain himself does not mean that there aren't good answers. As we'll see next week. But Job's experience also teaches us that there are far more important things than explaining the sovereign will of God. Things like accepting the sovereign will of God. Whether or not he explains it. 
Doing that will be a whole lot easier on you and me. I can tell you from my own experience, it's far easier to be putty in the potter's hands than to resist what God Almighty is doing. Good luck with that. If Job teaches us anything, it's that indeed the chief pang of most suffering is not the suffering itself, but our spirit of resistance, our spirit of resistance to it. Like Job, what we really need far more than deliverance is acceptance. We're not just talking about resignation, which is, you know, surrender to fate, but acceptance, which is surrender to God, to the God that we can trust. It's a process, just like it was with Job. It means working towards acceptance and away from resistance. Three steps forward, two steps backward as we progress. It might take 40 chapters like it did with him. So if it's taking you a while to learn this, take heart. Job was a righteous man. It says there was none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And if it took him that long to get to where he needed to be, you're in good company. It's where Hannah Hernard wanted to be. She was a famous devotional poet of another day. I love this little poem. There's real simplicity in it. She's speaking to the child in her and the child in us all. Here's where Job ended up before God lifted his suffering. She wrote, in acceptance lieth peace. My heart be still. Let your restless worries cease and accept his will. Though this test be not your choice, it is his. Therefore rejoice. Watch his plan and you will see in the end shall make you glad. So if this be his choice for thee, take it and be not sad. Make from it some lovely thing to the the glory of the king. And then finally, cease from sighs and murmuring. Sing his loving grace. This thing means thy furthering to a wealthy place. Just like it did for Job. From thy fears he'll give release. In acceptance lieth peace. It's where she ended up. It's where Job ended up. And it's where Johnny Erickson Tata ended up in the ER just a month or so ago when she thought she was dying of COVID. She's the quadriplegic with a worldwide ministry. I just found this this morning, so I didn't have time to give it to the sound man, to Justin. So we'll have to listen to it from here. But listen to Johnny's testimony. Can you thank you for freeing me up and out of it? Although, I don't know, maybe you can tell my lungs are telling me I'm not quite in the clear. Being a quadriplegic, it was so hard to breathe, especially at night in bed. And when I was told I had COVID, I thought, this is a death sentence. But my disability had already taught me how to carry even this cross. For when I trusted him to see me through, even if it did yes mean death, when I, when I gave it all up to him, I, I could feel 
God take gentle, firm possession of this strange affliction and, and begin to do a work in me. It was as though the Lord pressed me. Johnny, do you believe me that I will never leave you or forsake you? That I am your ever-present help in this trouble? That doubting me only makes things worse? Do you, do you believe my grace is sufficient? Whether I take you home or a, assign you to remain? Do you trust me? And in the dark, in bed, I cried out. Yes, Lord, I believe. And then in the ensuing hours and days, I felt this wonderfully odd calmness and almost indifference to how much it might hurt or how it would end. And I felt perfectly still under the hand of God. He pulled me close into a shelter and I, I felt myself resting in the shadow of the Almighty. And it felt blessed. G.D. Watson once wrote, he said, when the suffering soul reaches a calm, sweet carelessness, when it can inwardly smile at its own suffering and not even ask to be delivered, then it works its blessed ministry. Then the cross you carry begins to weave itself into a crown. When we give our suffering over to God and sink ourselves into his will, he will make every pain work its divine purpose in our lives. I trust my words are helpful to you today. If your suffering is to you a, a, a complete mystery, I pray you'll embrace God with willful thanks, finding hope in your hardships. Oh, and, and one more thing. She went on to give a word to the, uh, the handicapped around the world, a word of encouragement to all of them, uh, as she has a passion for. In acceptance lieth peace. You know, the ultimate application of all this is to move from fear and anger, which he does understand, but to move from that to surrender. It's in our best interests. So let's do that right now as we surrender through worship. Take whatever it is that you're struggling with and lift it up to his sovereign hands. Even though you can't see it yet, let's surrender to his sovereign plan together.